want you to imagine this leader of the early church, one of the inner circle of Jesus, if you will. He's facing death. He knows he's going to be executed probably in the next couple weeks. And this is his last opportunity to leave some instructions to this church. This is the man who opened, if you will, the New Testament, in a sense, when he preached on the day of Pentecost and all the other apostles stood with him. This is the man who challenged the social norms, although God had to go to him to do it, when he preached to a military officer's home and Cornelius and his household received the Holy Ghost. And then he had to defend his actions in front of a church council and prove that it was okay for him to have been in a Gentile's home and preached to them. So this is a very huge figure in the first century church. Church history says likely that Paul died before him within a close amount of time. So it's entirely possible, I will admit this is conjecture, that Peter is aware that Paul has recently been executed and now he's awaiting his turn. And so all this is kind of in the background, if you will, as we go into 2 Peter. Now put yourself, if possible, in this man's shoes. How do you write? What is it you're going to tell these people? You have one opportunity left to address this church and this is the last time you're going to be able to speak to them. What do you say? What do you cover? What kind of instruction would you give to this church? And this is what we find as the setup for 2 Peter. And what's interesting as we walk through it, and again, we're not going to go through the whole thing. My goal is chapter 1 tonight is you'll find that it's very much a letter of encouragement. I can hear, if you'll allow me to say this in a respectful way, the old man, the leader, who's also very agitated by what he sees coming behind him and issuing some warnings. And what's very interesting is he's dealing with skepticism. It's all throughout Second Peter. To use a different word, if we were to put it in today's context... It's very much the spirit behind what I referred to philosophically as post-modernity. This everything's relative. There are no absolute truths. You believe what you believe. I'll believe what I want. And so Peter is warning against this creeping its way into a church. And what's interesting is he wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago. Almost 2,000 thousand years ago and yet that warning still rings absolutely true today so we really see that warning begin to show up in chapter two I guess take this as a prelude you're going to have to hear me next time when I get to chapter two to unpack that part but I titled the series maintaining faith in an age of skepticism because I really think at the core of this letter that's a lot of what he's dealing with he's encouraging this church to maintain their faith even at a time where people are becoming skeptical of, is this real? Is, is it true? Is God really going to do these things? And so let's begin to walk through this tonight. Second Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 1. This letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. And I don't have time to unpack everything that I want in this chapter, but notice even in opening, he refers to himself willfully as a slave of Jesus. This is a man facing execution sometime probably in the next few days. And he opens this letter wearing it, if you will, almost as a title, as a badge of honor. A slave of Jesus Christ. 
I am writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and the fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. Justice and fairness as he's facing his execution shows you his perspective, the way that he looks at the world. What's also interesting is think about who's going to read this letter and what interaction is Peter going to have with them? He's not. So he's writing a letter to people he knows that are going to be reading this likely after his death. He's most likely writing this to an audience he has not met. He's leaving instructions, if you will, almost setting up the next generation of church leaders. And he opens by saying it. It's a common faith that we share. What united Peter with his audience And likewise, 2,000 years later, generation after generation after generation, what unites us with Peter and all the other apostles is that we share the same faith. And that's going to be key as we work our way through 2 Peter because faith is a big deal. And I know that sounds like a simple statement, and you hear that often coming across this pulpit, but it's absolutely core to Christian identity is faith. And it's absolutely core to dealing with skepticism Because by default, a statement of faith is something you can't prove. And in an age of skepticism, everything has to be proven. So this stands in direct contrast to that right up front. And it will remain in direct contrast to that until Jesus Christ returns at his second coming. There are some things that we cannot prove in our Christian walk. And God set it up that way. He expects us to walk in faith. And Peter opens this letter by saying, it is that faith that I have and the faith that you have that we have in common that unites us together. We walk through this life in faith, trusting what Jesus said, although we cannot prove all of it. May God, verse 2, may God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. This man is going to be executed sometime in the next few days. And his benediction, his blessing to these people is may you continue to live in peace. My wife and I were talking this afternoon about how good we have it and how spoiled we are. And if we could change this or that in our house. And I don't like our living room layout. This man's in jail about to be executed for his faith in the gospel message. And his blessing is he prays that God would continue to grant them peace. And I don't like my living room layout. I mean, how's that for real in the world we live in today, right? We're not satisfied with what we have. And yet this man, this man is a dead man walking at this point. And he's writing blessings of grace and peace as I serve as a slave to a God who is just and fair. So someday when we grow up and our big boys and girls in Christ, maybe we'll have this kind of perspective, huh? (laughs) Verse 3. By his divine power, God... I love this phrase. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need 
for living a godly life. Isn't that comforting? I love that phrase. Doesn't that sound nice? God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. But it cuts both ways. Because he didn't say God gives us everything we want. He didn't say God gives us all the answers. He didn't say God is going to explain himself. He said God gives you everything you need to live a godly life. So it's unspoken, but the implied mirror to that statement is, you got enough. If this is all you get, it's enough. You've got everything you need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. The fact that Peter would point out to these people who are going to be reading this that they have everything they need also comforts me in the sense that even 2,000 years ago, he recognized people wrestle with this. They, they struggle with this. There are times in our Christian walk where we're thinking, what are you doing, God? Why is it like this? Why are you allowing this? What fill-in-the-blank question that you may have? And Peter recognized that. And he's okay with it. And even in the first century church, he understood we have questions. We, we wrestle with doubts. But it's okay. God has given us everything we need. Not everything we want, but everything that we need. Verse 4. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Notice this emphasis on promise. It's going to be the same when we get to the next verse in a moment. Great and precious promises. And again, this is encouraging. This is exciting. But here's the thing about a promise. By default, if it's a promise, that means I don't have it yet. So that promise goes hand in hand with faith. If I take something in faith, by default, I can't prove it. If I accept God's promises, by default, I don't have them yet. And so part of that Christian walk, a large part of our Christian walk, is accepting the fact that we live in faith, looking forward to promises, things God has told us he will give us, but we have not received yet. This sounds simple, but think through this. If I am promised something and I've received it, it's no longer a promise. I already have it. There's no faith statement. I don't have to accept and believe in the promise if I'm already holding it. And much of what God has promised us is yet to happen. Most of the reward, most of the blessing that God has offered us is yet to happen. So we walk through life as Christians looking forward to something that hasn't happened yet. And Peter is reminding his audience these promises are coming if you keep the faith. And so this dynamic of holding on to faith and looking forward to promises is going to come up again 
You'll have to stay tuned till part two when I can get to it in chapter two. But we're going to see this idea and this theme repeated multiple times in 2 Peter. This idea that we have a common faith and we look forward to something that we don't have yet. The tension between keeping faith and looking forward to a future promise is a constant part of our Christian walk. And we will continue to live this way until the Lord returns. God always requires faith. He set it up that way, and I don't like it, (laughs) but it's the way he set it up. He always requires faith. I don't get all of my questions answered, and I don't get to see everything that God has in store for us. I get glimpses of it. He speaks to us through his word, He speaks to us through the proclamation and the preaching and teaching of his word. He speaks to us in our hearts through the spirit as we read his scripture, as we pray and commune with him. And he gives us glimpses of what's coming. Paul, in another place, talks about seeing through a fuzzy mirror or King James, you know, a glass darkly. You know, it's I got an idea, maybe the general outline of it, but I, I don't have the details. So I just keep looking forward to it. Verse 5, in view of all of this, in view of what? In view of these great, precious promises that God has given. In view of all of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. See this? How this faith promise thing is is very much a, a key part of what he's setting up here. Make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge. So for the next couple of verses, he's going to begin to set up these things that are kind of stacked on each other. If we're really looking forward to God's promises, then here is what we should be supplementing. In other words, here is what we should be adding to the faith that we already have. Moral excellence, that word could also be translated as virtue. So depending on the translation you read, it may say excellence, it may say moral excellence, it may say virtue. But the idea is the same word that he had used in verse 3 when referring to God. We have all received of this in verse 3. We have, all, we have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and his excellence. God calls us because of his glory, because of his excellence. Now that we're down here in verse 5, he's saying, add to your faith the same kind of excellence and character that God has. Same word, okay? So supplement faith with this moral excellence and with knowledge. What are you supplementing it with knowledge of? Knowledge of what? You're going to have to read the rest of the letter for that to get unpacked. Sorry. But the rest of this letter is very much concerned with right doctrine and avoiding false teachers. So this idea of growing in knowledge is not just general knowledge. Go and get yourself an education, although there's nothing wrong with that. What he's specifically talking about here is continue to supplement your faith with knowledge of right doctrine. Because a good portion of this letter is going to be concerned with avoiding false teachers. So you want to grow in your knowledge of what's right. You want to grow in your knowledge of Christian teaching. Verse 6. Supplement faith with moral excellence and knowledge. And now verse 6. And knowledge, supplement that with self-control. And self-control with patient endurance. And patient endurance with godliness. Self-control is the same word that we find in Galatians 5.23. 
when we see it in a list of the fruit of the Spirit. And this, by the way, this Greek word, and again, it's hard to come directly into English because you're going from one language into another. It's more than what we often think of with self-control as the idea of discipline. When I say self-control, I think of not eating that second piece of pie. That's self-control, right? That's discipline. Self-control is making myself get up in the morning and exercise before I go to work, which I don't do because I don't have that much self-control. But these are what we tend to think of with self-control, right? We got this idea of this rigidity, this self-imposed discipline that I put on myself. And the word does convey that idea, but that's too small of a definition. In context here, and also, by the way, in Galatians, in that list of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control has to do with my interaction with other people. That's actually more what it's getting at. How restrained I hold myself in dealing with others, especially when they are negative towards me. That's the self-control we're talking about. Although it's probably best that I don't eat that second slice of pie... Biblically, what we're talking about with self-control is how I interact with others. How well do I bite my tongue? How well do I control my spirit and attitude when I'm dealing with others? That's the kind of self-control that scripture is talking about here. So add to knowledge self-control and self-control patient endurance, or it could be translated perseverance or steadfastness or endurance, depending on the translation you read. All of these different words are used and they all convey the same kind of idea. One of the comments that I was reading in a textual note today said, a modern colloquialism might be stick to itness. You know, the idea that you're going to bear it out even when it gets difficult. Add to your faith that endurance, that steadfastness, that stick to itness, that I'm going to see this through until the end. And add to this godliness. And this godliness, again, is the same word that's used back in verse 3 when we talked about living a godly life. So Peter has put together this list, and it continues now into verse 7. To godliness, add brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The word brotherly affection there in Greek is the word Philadelphia, which all of you well know. That city is not full of brotherly love today. We learned that when we moved here. It does not live up to its namesake. But the Greek word there, Philadelphia, refers to the kind of affection that we have towards other people. In the New Testament, the word is used multiple times, and it's in reference to the love that Christians show towards each other. So this idea of brotherly love, another, uh, I saw another translation that worded it, mutual affection, again, trying to make it a little more gender neutral, because it's, it's not really brotherly as an only male. It's just simply referring to the idea of the love that we show towards each other as Christians. So your life of faith should be supplemented by all of these good qualities, including affection, kindness towards each other. And then finally, at the end of the list, love. The word there, and you've probably all heard this many times in other sermons and teaching, is the word agape. There are multiple Greek words translated love, in the New Testament. Somewhere along the way, you may have heard the word uh, agape referred to as, say, the highest form of love or something like that. To be fair, there's not really good grammatical evidence that says it's the highest form of love. It's another word for love, 
Okay, but we can't really structure it and say agape's here and then Philadelphia's here and then eros is here or something like that. There's different Greek words that have different contexts. But what is interesting is the word agape is rarely used outside of the New Testament. So you've got multiple different words for love in Greek and this word is mostly used in Christian literature, early Christian literature. It does exist outside of the New Testament, but it's not a very common word. So Christians took a word and it kind of became their own word for love. It's almost, not entirely, but it's almost exclusive to the Bible, this word agape. And it refers to this godly love, very similar to Philadelphia, this love that we have towards each other and this love that we have towards God. But when we say love, talking about a Christian setting, this is what we're referring to. This is the Christian idea of love. Not just love for my family, but love towards everyone, love towards self, love towards God. This large, encompassing, biblical view of love is this agape form of love. Grammatically putting it at the end of the list like this, it's like the crowning virtue, if you will. One of the things I read today said it's like the crescendo on Peter's list that he's put together. In light of the promises that we look forward to, supplement your faith with these various good qualities. And the last one on the list is love. The last one on the list really is the most important one. It's the crescendo, the apex, the height of it. And as you supplement your Christian faith with these various virtues, look what happens now in verse number eight. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way, look at this, are short-sighted or blind. Those who fail to develop in what way? Those, remember, he's writing to a Christian audience. So in context, he's talking about Christians. He's talking about immature Christians. Christians who have faith in God, but Christians who have not in addition to that faith, developed moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and endurance and godliness and brotherly affection and love for everyone else. Those Christians, those immature Christians who have not developed this kind of love are short-sighted and blind. Forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So in contrast to Christian growth, is those who are short-sighted, or you could say those who are blind. And the reason is they have a temporal problem. And when I say temporal problem, what I mean is they're not looking far enough out. That's why Peter called them short-sighted. They're only looking at what's going on right now in their present circumstance. Remember, he's already stressed faith, and he's already stressed the idea of God's promises. Peter, facing his execution is looking forward to things he has yet to see. He's dead man walking, and he's still talking about things I haven't seen yet, but I hold fast to my faith and these godly promises, these precious promises. In contrast to that, Christians who are not looking forward have become short-sighted. They're only seeing their present circumstance. And at this point in his Christian walk, if anybody has an excuse to be short-sighted, you would think it would be Peter. He's going to be crucified in the next few days for this faith. And yet he's still talking about a just and fair and merciful God. 
He's still talking about the one who has blessed us and has precious promises for our future. He's not short-sighted. People, and I say this kindly, but I'm just reading right out of Scripture, Christians who have gotten into the woe is me and it's terrible and where is God? And by the way, we all have down times. All right, all of us get in a funk at some point. But if we don't pull out of that, 2 Peter tells us that we've become short-sighted. We're just looking at the now and we're not looking far enough out. And that's dangerous because look what it leads to. When people have a short-sighted problem, if it doesn't get corrected, it leads to a memory problem. You start by being short-sighted. I'm only looking at what's in front of me. But if you stay that way for too long, then you develop a memory problem. Because in the same verse, he says, these people forget what they've been cleansed from. When I only look at my present circumstance and it's not good, and I linger there too long, it's easy to forget all that God has done for me. And that's where we get into dangerous ground. Because when we forget where God has brought us from, when we forget what God has done for us, then it becomes easy to drift and to wander, which is what he's going to warn about as we keep walking through this. But notice, even in this warning against the short-sightedness, in the background of it, we've still got this contrast between faith, this tension, if you will, that you're going to live with your entire Christian life, of faith paired with God's promises. If I am going to be a Christian, if I'm going to be a disciple of Christ, then I must accept, speaking to mature Christians tonight, part of this Christian walk is me and you accepting that I don't get everything I want. God's not going to answer all my questions and I'm not going to see everything that he has planned and I can't explain everything and I don't have answers for everything and I cannot prove beyond a reasonable shadow of a doubt, all things of my Christian walk. It's a faith statement. I choose to look forward to these precious promises that he has for me. And I will live my entire life that way until either I die or he returns. So in an age of skepticism, little foreshadow of what we'll get to in part two, you can't answer all the questions. In an age that constantly tells you to prove it, in a world that tells you everything is relative, there are no moral absolutes, what works for you doesn't necessarily work for me, that's the way you see it. I can't intellectually and philosophically argue my way into this perfect Christianity box because that removes the faith element. If I can explain all of it, it doesn't require faith. So... It's a circular argument, by the way. I am getting a little out of myself, but I'm going to park here for a moment. When dealing with this, when you deal with the skepticism that says, prove this or that about your Christian walk, and your answer is, I can't, and then the response is, ha, see, see? It's a circular argument. Because at the very core of Christianity is a faith statement. I said up front, it's a faith walk. That means I can't prove it. So you pointing out to me that I can't prove it hasn't done anything. I accept up front that I can't logically prove all of this. It's a faith claim. 
So dear brothers and sisters, verse 10, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away. And then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound like a precious promise that's worth looking forward to? Now, for those of you looking at the clock, I've been going 30 minutes and my goal was 25. And you're thinking, Desi's on verse 11 and there's still 10 more verses in chapter 1. How is he going to wrap this up tonight, right now? And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to cheat. 2 Peter verses 12 through 21 of chapter 21, uh, 12, verses 12 through 21 of chapter 1, you're going to have to go home and read yourself. <laughs> but I encourage you to do it. And here's my little wrap up on those 10 verses. In the last 10 verses of chapter 1, Peter is going to emphasize the fact that he is an eyewitness authority to the ministry of Jesus. And that's important because remember this letter deals with skepticism. And Peter's saying, look, I was there. I saw these things myself. This isn't a report that was given to me. I saw it. I walked with him. I am one of the eyewitnesses. I was, and the example he gives, I was one of the three with him when he was on the mountaintop and was transfigured into his glory. I saw him in his radiance. I know this for a fact myself. And so trust me, believe me when I tell you these things are true. And in light of what I have seen and serve as an eyewitness, I encourage you, this is Peter writing, he says, go back and read the prophets, what we would call the Old Testament, and see everything they talked about, about this coming Messiah, and how it's being fulfilled in our lifetime. And by the way, and this is a famous verse that we always quote, but put it in context of what he's writing here. None of them made this up themselves. In other words, none of this is their own private interpretation, for no prophecy of Scripture is in it of any private interpretation. He said none of these prophets came to this on their own. It's the Holy Spirit that revealed it to them. So in the context here, he's giving evidence of the fact, I can't prove everything about our faith walk with Christ, but I'm an eyewitness. And at this point, Peter's probably one of the last eyewitnesses. And he's the old man. And he knows the vanguard is changing. And the first generation of leadership in the early Christian church is literally dying off. And he's facing his own execution. And leadership and Christianity is passing into a new generation. And this is his final letter to them. And he's saying, before I die, I want to remind you, I was there. I saw this stuff myself. I walked with him. This is real. You can put your faith in it. And you go back and you reread those Old Testament prophecies that talked about this coming Messiah. And they're being fulfilled in our lifetime. And you can trust that they didn't make this stuff up either. It's the Holy Spirit that revealed it to them. And after making that statement, he begins chapter 2, where he begins to contrast this with this age of skepticism I titled this series. And those false teachers out there who scoff at everything. And if you want me to unpack that, you've got to come back next time. So if you'll stand with me, we'll go ahead and transition into the second half of our service. <laughs>